Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 8 of A Yank on the Footy. I'm Craig Wessels from Sandusky, Ohio, and I am glad that you're listening. This week's episode is going to take a bit of a detour from talking about footy in the present to take a look at a rather obscure event in the history of Australian football. We'll get to that in a few moments, but before I get to it, I wanted to take a few moments and talk about last weekend's NFL championship, the Super Bowl. I have to be honest, it was one of the better matchups in recent years, and the Kansas City Chiefs won their first title in half a century in 50 years. A lot of symmetry this year in the NFL. It was the 100th year of the NFL, and a team that won 50 years ago won the championship. I think you might actually be able to draw some parallels there between Richmond and the Chiefs, because I think the Chiefs' title drought between their most recent championship and their next one is going to be much, much shorter. I think they are set up well for a lengthy championship run, especially having Patrick Mahomes at quarterback, a dynamic player. At the time that I'm writing this episode, we're a few days removed from the Super Bowl, and as a half-century fan of the NFL, I can honestly say I thought it was a terrific game. I really enjoyed it. And from the sound of it, interacting with several people online, many of you listening in Australia enjoyed the game as well. Now, its uh, I know it's not a game that's at everybody's speed. A lot of people say that it moves too slowly, which I'm going to talk about here in just a moment. Now, over the last couple of years, I've kind of begun a bit of a tradition, something that I think that uh, nobody else in the state of Ohio is actually doing. Now, here in, in the states, uh, the, the network that carries the Super Bowl, and it varies from year to year, they spend a lot of money to do that, they will have six or seven or eight or 147 hours, if you will, of pregame shows to talk about the game, talk about all the different people and that sort of thing. It goes on for a long period of time. I'm not one of those folks that tends to watch those things. Okay. I've got other things that are going on and I'll watch the game when the game actually starts. But the one thing that I've done here in the last couple of years, and I think it's, this was my second year doing this, was that once the game's getting ready to start, I actually turn down the television sound and I grab my phone and turn on the live stream broadcast that's on SEN 1116. Like I said, I think I'm the only person in Ohio that's doing that. I enjoy listening to uh, Gerard Waitley during the footy season, and I figured out last year that, hey, guess what? He's doing the Super Bowl as well. So I tuned in. It was rather interesting. I enjoyed hearing his perspective. And he's broadcasting the game with the father of one of the greatest pass-catching legends in NFL history, a gentleman by the name of Larry Fitzgerald. Now, I didn't realize that his dad, Larry Fitzgerald Sr., had broadcast some other games here and there um, in the country, but I had not hear him, heard him do NFL games before. But what I really like is getting the Australian take on the game. Now, I send out a tweet to... Uh, Mr. Waitley and Mr. Fitzgerald commending them on their broadcast. And I've got to be honest with you, I was thrilled to get a response from Mr. Fitzgerald. Very kind response. Thank you, sir, if you're listening. Mr. Waitley, I'd love to get a retweet from you if you're back home now. Now, 
after the game was done, like I said, I hopped on social media and I was reading through a lot of comments from from people here in the U.S., but also people in Australia that were watching the game. And one of the comments that I saw several times was, and I've seen this quite a bit, was just the speed at which the NFL game is played. And this is something that I think everybody else here in the United States recognizes as well. There's a lot of stopping and starting in football as opposed to the constant action that goes on in footy. That constant action is something that actually drew me to the game because it doesn't stop, okay? And that slowing down of the game is one of the things that's actually driven me away from watching football here in the States. Okay, Uh, if you're listening here in the States, I've been a Cleveland Browns fan for my entire life. This is is the moment in the show where you go ahead and take pity on me uh, because my team has struggled for a long time. Uh, I'm 56 years old, and the last time they won a championship... I was one. I was in diapers. Truthfully, I hope I'm not in diapers again the next time they win a championship. But as people were saying, there is a lot of downtime in NFL games. Yeah, if you're somebody that doesn't watch NFL regularly, it can be difficult to watch. A play goes on for four, five, maybe a maximum of 10 seconds. And then there's anywhere between 20 to 40, maybe 50 seconds as the two teams set up to run another play, the offense goes into a huddle. The defense goes into a huddle. The quarterback and one of the defenders is getting a message through a little speaker that they have in their helmet telling them what play to run. That's been relatively new um, and has become universal in the game. We had a coach that tried to do that back in the 1950s. It didn't last for very long, though. But it takes a long time to run a play. Okay, It does move slow. But that's not always a bad thing. It's it's a different sport, and it's okay to be different. You know, I love the differences between footy and the NFL. Sometimes, and I don't remember if we saw it in the Super Bowl or not, teams will run what's called a no-huddle offense, where maybe they're behind or time is running out at the end of a game or a half, um, and they want to get as many plays run as they possibly can, or if they realize that the defense is tired, and they want to make sure that the defense can't catch their breath or bring players on that have caught their breath, they'll keep running plays. It's a great tactic to use, but I have to say, as a public address announcer, I announce football games at the high school level. It's difficult to announce those games because, one, it takes me time to figure out who was the runner, who made the tackle, get those announcements in, that type of thing. Sometimes there will be lulls in between plays where I will try to put forth an announcement during the course of the game. But generally, when the offense is lined up, ready to run a play, or they're in the huddle, I won't go over the sound system and talk because it's not my job to disrupt them. Okay. Now, one of the things that people here in the States have kind of gone into in two camps, and I don't know if this was really an issue in Australia or not, you know. We didn't have Meatloaf doing our halftime show. Maybe next year. Um, But one of the big issues was about the halftime show and the revealing outfits that the performers were wearing. Now, I'm not sure if any of you remember, it's been about 12 or 15 years ago during one of the Super Bowls that uh, Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson were performing together. And Justin Timberlake somehow managed to remove part of Janet Jackson's costume that he shouldn't have removed 
leaving a bare breast showing. And people were up in arms about that. Okay. But the revealing outfits, if you want to call them that, that uh, the artists uh, Shakira and Jennifer Lopez were wearing, they were really not a whole lot different than what the cheerleaders tend to wear who are working at NFL games. Their outfits are very minimal when they're cheering, if you want to call it cheering. It's usually a lot of standing around with pom-poms and I don't know how much cheering actually goes on. Now, if you end up getting an opportunity to watch a college or a high school game, the cheerleaders are generally much more conservatively attired. The clothing is much more conservative. They're much more reserved. Um, Some people, after the game was broadcast, were crying foul, saying it was double standard because last year's halftime show was performed by a singer by the name of Adam Levine, who is a singer for a band called Maroon 5. And he performed without his shirt on. And he was sweaty and glistening and all of his tattoos were showing. And there were all kinds of social media postings this past week saying, well, if it's okay for Adam Levine to perform shirtless, why isn't it okay for Shakira and Jennifer Lopez to wear the costumes they're wearing? I have to be honest with you, though. I've spent a couple minutes talking about this. I really don't care one way or the other because, well, I'm not sure if I'm like everybody else. I don't watch the halftime shows. I've never been a big fan of these forced performances that the NFL tries to put together. Now, I understand that they're trying to bring as many people to the game to get as high ratings as possible, get as many people watching. So they want to bring in all different types of musicians to appeal to different people. But I'm not a big fan of them trying to bring performers from all sorts of different genres and put them together, okay? And then try to do a medley of a whole bunch of different things in the span of 20 minutes. You know, about 15 years ago, well, it's almost 20 years ago now, Britney Spears and Aerosmith performed together. Britney Spears and Aerosmith don't have a whole lot in common musically, but they put them on stage together. Okay. You know, I, I if if they're gonna put the Rolling Stones on again, I'll probably watch. The Who? Absolutely, I'll be there. But putting a bunch of different genres together to me isn't a really great show. But it's it's what the NFL is doing now. It's an international event, and let's be honest, I'm a fifty six year old man. I am not their target audience. Okay. I'm gonna be watching anyway. Now, I would much prefer having one of the fantastic college marching bands in the country perform. Heck, I have a kid who's in college who performs in the marching band at their school. They performed in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade back in November. I'd have loved to watch their band perform. Or the Ohio State Band or the Michigan Band or USC. Some great marching bands out there. That'd be my preference. But like I said, they're not giving me a vote, so I didn't watch the show. Halftime show didn't interest me. Again, me being rather odd in terms of how I go about doing things, I went ahead and watched an episode of Hogan's Heroes. It's kind of been my go-to mindless TV show for years. It filled basically the same amount of time. And when the episode was over, I went back and watched the second half of the game. And it was an enjoyable game. 
All right, that's enough about the Super Bowl. I wanted to move in and talk about the main focus of this episode. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive 
extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. December 7, 1941 is one of the most memorable, day, memorable days in world history. As you heard there in President Franklin Roosevelt's comments before a joint session of Congress on the 8th of December, Japan and the Japanese military had attacked several targets in the Pacific, including the Pearl Harbor Naval Base. The Americans and their allies in the Pacific, Australia, they quickly realized that they're going to have to work side by side in order to thwart those Japanese advances into New Guinea and their attempts to disrupt merchant shipping into and out of Australia and basically take over control of all of the shipping lanes in the Pacific Ocean. After the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, stated that if he was forced to decide, he would end up being compelled to use British soldiers and materials to defend England rather than helping to protect Australia from Japanese advances, the Australian Prime Minister at the time, John Curtin, realized that he was going to need to reach out for some help. And he turned his focus to the assistance of the United States. And by 1943, there were almost a quarter of a million American troops, mostly Marines, in Brisbane and in Sydney and in Melbourne. Now, after the Japanese took over the, the, much of the Philippine Islands, General Douglas MacArthur, who ultimately ended up being the, the head of the U.S. military in the Pacific theater, he was ordered to abandon the Philippines and get out 
Now, he made a famous comment on as he was leaving where he had vowed that, I shall return. And he did. And they showed him returning, walking ashore. And they didn't have very good lighting the first time, so they had him walk back out into the water and walk ashore again. So it was a better piece of footage to give to the American people. He moved his headquarters to the city of Brisbane, and he set up his new headquarters on the eighth floor, the eighth level of a bank that's at 201 Edward Street. At the time, the bank was also one of the tallest buildings in Brisbane, and there was serious concern about that building becoming a target for shelling and being attacked by Japanese ships out offshore. With that being the case, they created an alternative and less conspicuous headquarters, and that was established at 20 Henry Street in Nirambia. I hope I pronounced that correctly. N-Y-R-A-M-B-I-A, Nirambia. I believe that's correct. A few miles and a couple river bends away from the bank. As MacArthur settled into his new location, American service members, as I said, predominantly Marines, they began to arrive in Australia. They began to settle in in Brisbane, in Sydney, in Melbourne. Now today, there's actually a MacArthur Museum commemorating his time in Australia and kind of a a little bit of a history of, of the warfare on the eighth floor of that bank. It's still there. Now, in Daniel Keene's 2018 article, Austis, the wartime football that blended Australian and American gridiron rules, states that American military members came into Australia rather full of themselves. And according to Victoria University sports historian Rob Hess, they were, quote, and I've heard this phrase before, I guess applied in Europe as well, they were oversexed, overpaid, and over here. To catchphrase, it kind of reflected the public dislike of the brash and cocky young Americans. These young Americans, along with their Australian allies, the other troops, were training for war. And this war is going to later see them in terrible conditions of combat. Several awful instances, some of the most brutal battles in the Pacific theater. And many of these young men, both Australian and American, would soon be on the front lines as the Allies began their island-hopping campaign to push the Japanese military out of their island strongholds and continuing to drive them back to mainland China, hoping to end the war. Now, what happens when you move tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people from another country into your country? Well, there's some animosity, and there's some angst, and that angst actually kind of came to a head between the American and Australian soldiers on February the 13th of 1943 when it was estimated that 3,500 American troops, Australian soldiers, and civilians waged an all-out brawl on the streets of Melbourne, actually shutting down several streets. Now, the local papers, from what I was able to find, they only talked about them as being military members, as troops. They didn't specify that they were from one country or the other. I think they were trying to help to prevent any more um, angst or animosity between the two sides. So it was quickly becoming evident that something had to be done to help these these, uh, people pass the time. You're training for difficult missions. You realize when you go out on those difficult missions, you may not be coming back. 
Now, I served in the Navy on an aircraft carrier. I was in a very safe position where I was. But there are people that go out in battle that I've read about and I've seen in interviews and such that go out with the mindset that, you know what? I'm already dead. If I happen to come back, that's a bonus. That's a pretty scary thought. That's a terrifying thought, as a matter of fact. So they needed to find something to help them pass the time, to build camaraderie amongst themselves, something besides bar hopping anyway. Now, both the Americans and the Australians Australians knew there was going to be a time where they were going to be thrust into these battles. They didn't know when, but they knew it was going to happen. It was inevitable that it was going to happen. They were going to be going to war. And, and as in many stressful situations, the people that were involved, they became envious, okay, as I'd mentioned before. In uh, David Warner's 2000 article, 2006 article, Football History 101, The Lost Hybrid Game, the Australian service members didn't like the Americans very much. And again, partly because they had more money, they had better uniforms, and supposedly they had much more charm around the local ladies. Well, I have to be honest with you, that must have ended in World War II because I didn't have much of that. Despite these differences, it was imperative that these groups of, of young men learn to work together, to be cooperative with one another because they're going to be out there fighting side by side, conducting the same battles. They're going to have to learn to get along with one another. And they're going to be thrust into some horrible situations. So while the American troops were getting acclimated to Australia, they, like any group of people, looked for a way to have some fun during their downtime. One thing that the Australians did seem to enjoy was watching the forward passes, the quarterbacks throwing the ball. Unfortunately, this didn't happen very often because... In the 1940s, the ball was run more often than it was thrown. Now, I want to take a quick side side note from what's going on in Australia, and I want to come back and talk about something that happened right here in Sandusky, Ohio, where I live. Okay, The forward pass in American football, it had been around for about 30 years. It was part of the rules going back into the early 1900s, but it didn't get used very often. It was thought of as being kind of difficult to coordinate and diff- difficult to implement into the game. But back in 1913, back in 1913, there were a couple of college football players, two gentlemen by the name of Newt Rockney and Gus Doris, D-O-R-A-I-S. They both played at the University of Notre Dame, which is in Indiana, just outside of South Bend. And these two young men, Rockney and Doris, they both worked as lifeguards at the beaches of what is now the Cedar Point Amusement Park here in Sandusky, Ohio. The entrance to this park, it's less than a mile of my less than a mile away from my house. And during that summer of 1913, these two players would use their downtime when they were on the beach working as lifeguards to perfect using the forward pass. And when they went back to college in the fall and they began practice for their upcoming football season, they were able to incorporate the forward pass much more readily into the 
game plan of Notre Dame, and they had a great deal of success. In fact, Newt Rockney went on to become the coach at Notre Dame for many years later on in life. Okay, so what we're talking about that's going to be happening here in Australia here momentarily has its roots and its foundations about a mile from where I am right now, maybe two miles once you get back into the park. But it is extraordinarily close. And if you look in the show notes for this episode, you'll see I did put a photograph of a plaque that is at the beach commemorating what these two gentlemen did. Now, as the Australians are watching the Americans play, it gave them an idea. They said, well, why don't we introduce the game of Australian rules football to the Americans? So they had an exhibition of Australian football. Great idea. The Americans loved it. They loved the nonstop action. It won them over. Wow. That also sounds like something I mentioned way back in episode one. So while the Americans could run and tackle right alongside the Australians, they could probably figure out the handball as well. Kicking the ball was something that had become a lost art in American football. Yes, it's been called football since its inception, but there's not a whole lot of kicking in the game. So the results, when they actually decided to go ahead and play a game of Australian rules football, where you had Australians on one side and Americans on the other side, the Australians kicked their butts. The results were very predictable. They dominated the game. I'll tell you what, I think the Americans could have used Mason Cox at that time. So the disparity in skills, this difference, if you will, between the two, it was screaming that some kind of a compromise had to be worked out. The Australians were not excited about American football. A lot of equipment was necessary for that. And the, Amer- and the Australians were not fond of that. And the Americans were not, well, they loved what they saw with Australian football. They didn't have the skill set to compete against the Australians. And this is where a gentleman by the name of Ern Cowley comes into play. Now, at the time, Ern Cowley was the baseball editor for the Melbourne Sporting Globe newspaper. And he came up with an interesting solution. Okay. Now, Cowley was actually a 178-centimeter forward that played for two years and 24 games with Carlton back in 1918 and 1919. He was their leading scorer in 1918. In fact, he led the VFL with 35 goals that year. He left footy after 1919 to focus his abilities on baseball. From what I was able to find out, he was a very good pitcher, and he represented Victoria in interstate competition. So Cowley realized that footy, as it was, put the Americans at a huge disadvantage. He realized that, you know what? We need to create a game that's some sort of an amalgamation of both of these sports, allowing both groups to do what they do successfully. And he proposed combining the two games into a single blended game, which would later on become known as Austus, A-U-S-T-U-S. I bet you know where those, those letters came from. A-U-S-T-U-S. Yep. He worked alongside a Marine Corps corporal by the name of William Jost to help create the new rules for the game. Now, 
the biggest difference in this game, the biggest change in this, what they what we're calling a hybrid game, was allowing the American players to use the forward pass that we had talked about. While the, the Australian players were very accurate with their kicks, they, along with the large crowds that came out to watch, were amazed by the novelty of the new game and just how deadly accurate the Americans were when they threw the ball. So the Americans were now, with this game, the big compromise here was the Americans were able to throw the ball instead of handballing, instead of kicking it to get to their teammates. So they were able to throw it just like they were able to do in American football. Now, again, still, that's something that while you may have gone into your yard when you were younger and you would throw a football around with your, your buddies, throwing the ball is still something that not a lot of American football players do. That's usually reserved for the quarterback, or once in a while there may be a trick play where somebody who played quarterback when they were much younger might get a chance to throw the ball. Okay. Now, in the game of Austis, the ball could be thrown both forwards and backwards. It wasn't limited to only being thrown forwards. You could throw it sideways. You could throw it forward. You could throw it back, just like handballing in footy, just like kicking the ball in footy. Now, many, if not most, of the traditional rules, they stayed, okay? You had to tackle between the neck and the knees. No low, no high tackles, okay? You still had to bounce the ball or touch it to the ground every 10 yards. So that's a little bit of a variance. But one of the big differences, though, was the introduction of the 20-meter the arc. Okay, it wasn't a 50-meter. It was a 20-meter arc. And those both were designed to kind of make the game a little bit uh, more level once they realized, well, the Americans are going to be able to throw the ball a pretty decent distance fairly accurately. So any throw for goal had to take place outside of that arc. So you couldn't you know, even put today's rules into the... Uh, into, into effect, you got a 50-meter penalty against you. You couldn't take it down inside the 20-meter arc and throw the ball from two meters away and kick it through the goal. You had to st- Maybe in that case you could, but you generally had to throw from outside of the 20-meter arc. Okay. Now, one of the other changes that got made right before they were getting ready to play was that they decided, you know what, we're going to actually play the game with an American football rather than Australian football. The American football, the ends, the tips of the ball are a little bit more pointed. And once the, the, the forward pass became more prevalent in American football, they actually kind of redesigned it to make it a little bit more aerodynamic, to make it a little bit easier to throw the ball, which was kind of the whole idea behind it. So once the rules are crafted, some people came along with other suggestions, other ideas on how do we go about improving it even more? gentleman by the name of the Honorable Sir Frank Beaurepair, who had been the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, he suggested limiting the number of players on the field. He wanted it to be 14. And he kind of had some foresight here because he thought, you know what, if this game expanded elsewhere, maybe you set it up in areas, you know, you set it up with a smaller group of people on the field than you typically would have because other places around the world don't have the same sized facility. So he had some foresight here. And one of the reasons why he had that is that he was actually one of the people that helped organize bringing Australian rules football to the Australian soldiers who were fighting and were stationed in England during World War I. Ultimately, during 1943, 
they played five games, okay? And they really got the games going, and the rules kind of came to fruition when Bill Jost, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, helped Cowley write the, write the rules. And he had challenged uh, Ernest Withhall, who happened to be the manager of the Explosives football team. This was the Australian munitions department that was in Mary Bernong in Victoria, where he said, where Joe said to them, permit us to throw the ball and we'll beat you at our own game. Well, that sounds like a rather pompous statement to make, but turns out he was right. Turns out he was right. And throw he did. During halftime of the fourth game of the five that was played, Jost set a record at the time for throwing the ball, throwing the football, 76 yards, one and a half feet. Now, there were five games that were played. The first game was played on July 18th of, of 1943, and that was at the Richmond football ground. And the Americans defeated the explosives 8-5-53 to 5-8-38. So Jost was correct there, beat them at their own game. Well, until the second game. The second game was played on August 1st, which is All Allies Day, and it was a much stronger Australian team that defeated the Americans 17-13-1-15 to 12-6-78. The third game was played in Richmond again against Ordnance, who happened to be the premiers of the Australian Services Competition. So they were the best military team that Australia had to offer. And the Americans defeated them 12-3-75 to 7-10-52. If you look at that 12-3, that might be a rather compelling argument of just how accurate the Americans were throwing the ball as opposed to kicking it. The fourth game, and this one was a rather interesting one. The fourth game was played on August the 29th, and it was won by a team that was actually very well represented by talent from the VFL, including... 137 game player with Geelong Tom Arclay and five-time Cats leading goal kicker and 140 game VFL player Lindsey White. The Australian team won that game 17-18-120 to 14-10-94. The fifth and final game was played at North Melbourne and the Americans defeated the Explosives Club again, the one they played in the first week. I did not find a score for that one. I was not able to find what the score was for that one. But here we have a game that the two countries are able to come together, realizing that they're going to have to work together, work cooperatively, and they build some camaraderie. They build some team teamwork and some, some ability to realize that, you know what, we're all together in this. Now, in the show notes, you'll find a short YouTube clip of some players that are playing. It's very grainy. It's not the greatest video, but it's about a minute-long clip of players playing the game of Austis. It's the only one that I could locate, and somebody actually shared that one with me. So once this game is getting going, once this game is starting to get played, people are starting to talk about it because you have reporters who are from the United States who are reporting on the game. You have people in Australia who are reporting on the game as well, and the reports that are coming out of the game were extraordinarily positive. And you could argue that, you know what, this game might actually have a, a decent future. There was a sergeant who was a war correspondent by the name of, name of Gerald Waynedale, and he wrote, quote, they've introduced the forward pass to Australian football, 
and the result is a cyclonic, wide-open, high-scoring combination of soccer, basketball, and aerial bombardment. Quote. In the Christian Science Monitor newspaper, H. Archie Richardson wrote, wrote that Austis was evolved a set of rules so simple and yet so full of spectacular possibilities that it may prove to be the most interesting of all football games. Also, the story of the inception of the game is the major international sports feature of the war to date. A reporter for the San Francisco Examiner, Harry Hayward, wrote, quote, Imagine throwing three 60-yard forward passes, wham, one after the other for 180 yards and a goal. It can and does happen in Austis. Maybe our Yankee soldier boys will bring a new game worth watching back with them from Australia. The official Australian Army educational journal called SALT said that, quote, the Americans are enthusiastic about the game and hope to push it into northern areas where Australian and U.S. forces are close and in close contact. They prefer Austis to gridiron because it's a much more suitable sport for warm climates and does not require the strenuous training or as much equipment. A large issue of gridiron footballs had already been sent to northern stations and this game could quickly be learned. In September 1940, even before the Japanese attack on the different islands throughout the Pacific, in the Rotarian magazine out of Chicago, Illinois, the secretary of the VFL at that time, a gentleman by the name of L.H. McBrien, he'd written an article about footy down under, and he had indicated a desire for a U.S. tour after the war. And the editor of the magazine said that sportsman, here's a game, and again, this is this is a, a writer in 1940, the editor in 1940 saying this, an American. Sportsman, here is a game indigenous to Australia where it was introduced in 1858. It demands abilities not unlike those possessed by the kangaroo. Boy, there's the obnoxious American for you, isn't it? Energetic leaping and running are requisites. The football subtly reflects the individualism of the Australian with the return of peacetime activities, it's hoped that the sport will catch on in other lands, thus making it an inter-country competition. Does that not sound a little bit like the story that came out this week with GWS saying that they want to open their season in the United States next year? Again, one of the discussions that I saw on Twitter was, where do they play? Do we have a stadium that has a big enough footprint to put a footy oval on it? I don't know the answer to that question. But if I had a company that rented seats for a, you know, temporary seats for a stadium, I would get in touch with GWS and say, hey, we'll rent you some stands so you can come play. Now, the Goldsmith Sports Bulletin, which was actually from right here in Ohio, they published the story that Sergeant Waynedell, who I'd mentioned before, had written about Austis. And they, they quoted their editorial for this, said, Yes, from what Sergeant Waynedell says, this game, the child of Leathernecks and Aussies, has been born to live a long and exciting life. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But whatever the future may hold for Austis, today it is doing an outstanding job of fueling the friendship between the United States and Australia into an everlasting bond. If it accomplishes nothing else, Austis will go down in history as one of the great ambassadors of international goodwill. Who knows? If this game had received the funding it had hoped for, because people tried to bring Austis to the United States after the war had ended, but they could not secure funding, the finances, to bring players to the United States to play. 
who knows, if that had happened, the Super Bowl that I just got done talking about might never have taken place. Maybe Austis displaces the NFL and becomes the game of the United States. Or if Mr. McBride had gotten his wish and brought the game of footy here after the war, maybe that displaces the NFL as well. We'll never know. Now, just a, a little sidebar here. The American team captain, William Jost, he survived the war, and he passed away in 1975 at the age of 58. And Ern Cowley passed away in 1975 as well at the age of 83. Now, one last little component from the, the different articles and such that I was researching. Um, Daniel Keene proposed in his article... Uh, that, quote, many, many fans of Australian rules would argue that it's the best game ever devised because it arguably tests more skills than any other code of football. Quote. Now, that sure sounds an awful lot like what I said back in episode one as to why I fell in love with this game, but uh, he put it in print, so... You pass the ball with your hand or foot, both left and right. You have to be quick. You have to be strong. You have to sprint and tackle. You also have to think and read the play on the spur of the moment. And there are many who excel at these basic skills without having mastered the crucial cerebral moment. So he he was arguing there that there are people that have the ability to do it, but some of them maybe just never developed the, the quick thinking to be able to implement everything that they wanted to do. The sports historian that I mentioned earlier, Professor Hess, brought up a couple of interesting points as well, and I'd love to get your feedback on these. He posed the following here. He said, despite its strengths, Aussie rules has always suffered from the status anxiety. Status anxiety. That's always been the Achilles heels of of, of Aussie rules. It's a very localized code. And Keene closes out his article with the following. The inevitable question is, is this, and it's the one that the defenders of the game face. If it's so good, why are the only one, why are we the only ones that play? So if Australian rules football is so good, why are we the only ones that play? Why haven't other countries, and for that matter, the rugby states, seen the light and adopted it for themselves? That's a great question. Now, fortunately, in my time developing this podcast and looking around and talking to people, yeah, we've come to the realization that the USAFL is alive and well with 50-plus teams, people playing all over the United States. The AFL has organizations that are playing all over Canada, all over Europe, in Asia, in India. The game is everywhere. Now, it's not at maybe the level of the AFL in Australia, but it's being played. Okay. It's being played and it, and it, I agree with it. It is, it is such a good game. Now, my guest last week, Frode Jernhardt, he is the one that mentioned the clip that he had seen. He, he ran across this video clip and I'd never heard of it before. He sent it to me. He shared this stuff with me about Austis, which is what gave me the idea to go ahead and put together this week's episode. It's something that I'd never encountered And during my research this week, I talked to a number of Australians who were unaware that this game existed as well. So it was great to be able to hopefully bring this to people who didn't know about it, 
who have grown up and lived their entire lives being footy fans. That was terrific. I'd like to give a big shout out to Orville Gibson as well. He helped me out with a couple of different key research points. He lives on Russell Island in Queensland. He was very helpful with a couple things, uh, specifically dealing with uh, MacArthur and his headquarters, that type of thing. Um, you were extraordinarily helpful, Orville. I appreciate it. This was a stressful week researching this, yet I had a blast digging into and finding more and more things. I, hopefully I didn't dig too much into the war aspect of it. Um, I'm, I'm a social studies teacher. I teach government, I'm a government teacher. I taught history for a number of years. I'm, I'm fascinated by things that went on during World War II, but there, there was a lot that I learned in this episode. I'll be honest with you, I had never really looked all that closely into MacArthur. I knew that he was forced out of the Philippines, but I never really looked into where he went. And now I know he went to Brisbane. Okay. Now, like I said, this is a very stressful week, but I had a whole heck of a lot of fun with it. Um, I would love to hear from those of you who are listening uh, on Twitter at yank underscore on. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at a yank on the footy. You can always reach me at a yank on the footy at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and find out if you knew about the game of Austis. And who knows, maybe one of your older relatives were actually able to see one of these games when they were younger. Maybe they did. Maybe they lived in, in uh, Geelong or they, they saw a game at Richmond. Okay, please feel free to reach out to me and share that information because I'd love to do a follow-up with that. And uh, if you've got a footy story that you want to tell and you think that, uh, you know, that you would like to, to come on here and do an interview, I'd love to talk with you. So shoot me an email at a yank on the footy at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to wrap up here and I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to this podcast. I'm humbled by the kind words that I have, that I've had shared with me. Ones that I've read online through reviews on Apple podcasts, things that I have seen on the Podbean app, comments that I have seen on Facebook and on Twitter. I am truly humbled by what you have said. And I cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate you listening. I'm really enjoying this exploration into this game, learning more about it. And again, I thank you for listening. I hope that you'll consider sharing a link to my podcast with your friends. And remember, we're all friends. Of, we're all fans of our own teams. We may not like one another's team, but we do have one thing in common. And that's a love for footy, the best game in the world. I appreciate you listening again. Thanks again. And may your dribble kick never hit the post. I'll catch you later. This has been Episode 8 of A Yank on the Footy. Thanks again for listening, and I'd like to thank Mr. Joseph McDade for the use of two of his pieces of music, Elevation and Backplate. Both of these and other great tunes are available at josephmcdade.com backslash music. Thanks again for listening, and goodbye.